Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I try to understand success. In this second season, we're talking to a range of individuals who've succeeded in new and different areas from sport to public life and all types of business. This episode is a bit different and in a good way. It's taking place outside in one of the beautiful royal parks in central London, Kensington Gardens. This isn't just a matter of enjoying the outdoors, but it's core to who I'm meeting for the episode and also explains to some degree the way he works. I'm getting together with Tim Jackson, who is, among other things, the CEO of Walking Ventures, a seed fund based here in London, which invests in early stage internet and technology startups. Tim, good to see you. Very good to see you. Good morning, Richard. It's lovely to see you. Now, full disclosure, we both know each other from way back when. <laughs> we were at school together. We do. And we haven't seen each other in about 30 years. It's been a while. Yeah, you haven't changed. <laughs> so, Tim, you run Walking Ventures, which, as I've described, is a seed fund. It's so called because you conduct meetings with those you're considering investing in by taking them for a walk, much like we're doing now. But your professional origins are some way off from what you do now. You started as a journalist writing for the Financial Times, The Economist and The Independent. Among other things, you were based in Japan, in Brussels, on the west coast of the US, and you wrote a well-known biography of Richard Branson. But you left journalism to found QXL, com an online auction service which was sold in 2007 for 1.9 billion dollars you also served as the managing director of u.s private equity firm carlisle and with walking ventures you've invested in a wide range of companies from medical technologies to education softwares to car search engines you do these walks with potential clients to get to know them better, and you love to do them nice and early. It's, what is it, about 8 a.m. now? I suppose there were two reasons why I started uh, taking walks in the park with entrepreneurs. One was just that I realized that the most important thing when you're thinking about making an investment is the people. And it's actually quite hard to learn about the people when you're sitting in a conference room and you've got an hour-long slot, and you're going through a set of slides. And you have a very different conversation with somebody if you're walking side-by-side through a park. So how much, then, of that meeting is about the psychology or the personality of the individual versus, you know, their either hard experience or, or the details of what they're saying to you? Well... I'm not sure I'd use the word psychology or personality because that makes it sound like it's a kind of carefully considered analysis. I would say it's more just about hearing their story. I was meeting somebody the other day who told me something interesting about his motivations for starting his company and mentioned something that his grandfather had done that was kind of relevant to this. And when I asked him a bit more, he said gosh, you're actually the first investor who's asked me anything about, you know, my life or my family or whatever. That's slightly surprising because the way we act and the way that we, that we work is quite influenced by the stuff that's happening around us in our lives and what happened before. You said the story. So you want to know their kind of literal backstory, you know, where they came from, how they came to that idea. 
Yeah. And the thing is that um, people who do startups often kind of, over time, learn to package up the story of how they started their company into a neat anecdote. So, you know, a good example would be the founders of Airbnb had people coming for a, a game in San Francisco and decided to buy a load of air mattresses and uh, rent out space in their apartment. But I think of those as kind of the creation myth. They're not necessarily real. And when you ask people just to tell you a bit about the jobs they've done before or what they've learned from previous experiences, then you start to understand a bit more about what's really going on. Is there also a personal aspect? Because you took this... I mean, I would describe it as kind of a sharp left turn in your career or a sharp right turn. You're a journalist and you could have carried on. You're very successful as a journalist. Then you did something completely different. You went into, into business, in effect. In a way, I guess I'm asking, what's your story then? What's your own story? Yes, wow. Shall we make a left yeah, here? Yeah. I'd been working as a journalist for 12 years and I'd written a lot about people doing things in the world, I realized, the thought struck me, that there is something sort of observational about being a journalist, where rather than actually doing anything, you're watching other people do things, and you're writing about other people doing things. And it struck me that actually it would be quite nice to actually do something in the world. I know that sounds sort of disparaging about journalism, and that's not at all what I mean. It reminds you of a line Harry met Sally, where right. Harry says to Sally, she, she says she's going to be a journalist, right. so something can happen in her life. So he says, you're going to look at what's happening in other people's lives then. Um, That's very true. When you take people on walks like this, hmm. I would imagine it throws them off slightly. And the questions that you ask by trying to understand them or, or their personal motivations also does the same thing. I don't know. I mean, I think I've once or twice had people who kind of misunderstood and thought that it was simply a way of putting them in an unexpected situation that would somehow surprise them. You know, one guy showed up to the interview in a suit with a pair of highly polished shoes uh, holding a laptop open to the first page of his presentation. And I think he thought that he was going to be having just a completely normal business meeting, but with the twist of having to walk through the park and advance the slides at the same time. And I had to say, no, no, this isn't a presentation. It's just a conversation. Tim, this just seems like the perfect place to, to stop and, and sit down. These lovely benches by the Albert Memorial. Should we take a seat and uh, we can carry on talking? Love to. I want to go back to ask you about when you were a journalist, because you worked for the Financial Times, you worked for The Economist and The Independent. You're based in Japan. You also as I mentioned, wrote a book, a biography of, of Richard Branson. How much, particularly in the kind of journalism that you did, did that work sort of inform your later decision and, and your skills to enter into the world of business? Well, I think it certainly made me really interested. And I've always been kind of fascinated by how things work and when things don't work and how to fix them. One of the things that was quite striking for me about writing about Richard Branson and Virgin was that I met loads of people that he'd done business with throughout his career. And when the book was published, he was a bit upset because he thought it was too critical of him. The reviews disagreed and said I'd been much too nice. But the thing that was striking was that 
there had been often occasions in his life when businesses weren't going well. And looking backwards, it always seemed obvious that everything was going to succeed. It was only looking forwards that there was uncertainty. And that was something that actually I learned quite quickly when starting a business myself, because I had a slightly starry-eyed vision of how it would work out. And I realized once I started it that it's a hundred times easier to criticize other people for their failings in running businesses than actually to run one yourself. And that, in fact, you get moments, some of which can be very scary, when you're thinking this might fail completely. And you don't actually know what the end of the story will be because it's happening in real time. And I'm assuming that was your experience when you were sitting there and you... I mean, your first venture was was into... QXL, was that right? Is that um, right? I'd done a couple of other businesses before that had never really got off the ground. But yeah, that's right. And um, it happened because I'd been writing a column for the Financial Times about web business models. And I had seen that the internet was changing the world at a time when people in Europe didn't fully appreciate that. And it seemed very clear that people would look back on that first decade of the commercial internet because there was a kind of academic internet before that and would see that it was remarkably influential and it changed everything. And it struck me that, you know, I don't want to just be a spectator on this. It would be nice to, you know, when I'm 80 years old and have grandchildren sitting on my knee who said, what did you do then? To say, well, actually, I tried to do something. I was a journalist also for a number of years. And I remember I defined myself very much by being a journalist. And and switching tracks at the time for me was like, it wasn't traumatic in any way, but it certainly was a major adjustment and I had to think about myself differently. Did you have that same experience? I think to a point. One interesting thing about working for an institution with a very strong reputation, like the BBC in your case, or like the Financial Times or The Economist, is that people understand that the institution is influential and therefore if you call, they will take your call. And it's often tempting to believe wrongly that they're responding to your, to your request because of your charm and good looks, when in fact it may be simply because of the company name on your business card. And when you change the company name on your business card, but nothing else, and you observe a difference in how people respond to you, that can sometimes be a little bit crushing. Yeah, I always thought it was about my charm and good looks. But... <laughs> and what about, I mean... I'm sure that there were quite a number of journalists at the FT and The Economist who were thinking, first of all, when you went out the door, yeah, there he goes, he'll be back. And then also when you succeeded, a fair amount of jealousy, because I'm sure you know, as I do, any number of journalists who are thinking, what comes next? Did you feel much of that? Well, I do remember getting a call from Lionel Barber, who was editor of the FT, at the time that my company went public, when he said... Tim, I've got to tell you, you've, you've been an inspiration to all the rest of us at the FT. And I sort of started saying modest things, you know, feeling very plumped up with pride at that. He said, yes, he carried on. He said, yeah, we look at you and we think, if he can do it, any idiot can. <laughs> I think there was a bit of jealousy involved in that personally, but there you go. I'm not sure I remember it fully correctly. Who knows? Hi, it's Richard here. Sorry for the interruption. I'll keep this quick. This production's made by Earshot Strategies, a podcast company founded in 2017 by me. I'm passionate about podcasts, which is why I set up Earshot. It helps a range of clients make the most of the wonderful medium of audio. 
We've worked with huge multinational companies like Airbus, international organizations, as well as universities, think tanks, publishers, nonprofits, and many, many others. We work with them from idea to ear, from providing expert advice on changing an existing podcast or launching a new series, through to training, production, and promotion. To see and hear more about what we do, visit our website www.earshotstrategies.com Now, with no further interruptions, back to the podcast. So what were your initial steps into making that move from journalism to business, and and why specifically then QXL? Well, um, I had written 100 columns for the FT about different businesses and different companies, and so I had looked quite broadly at the different kinds of companies that were being set up and what kind of opportunities there were. So I did a piece of sort of management consultant type analysis and thought through three or four different things that might work and then concluded um, that actually a company that helped people sell stuff that they didn't need to other people and used an auction format might be the most effective way to do it. So you set up QXL. What were your aspirations for it at the time? Well, my aspirations were to build a fantastic product that people found really valuable. And my short-term aspiration was to get a chunk of money from venture capitalists who would help fund the growth of the business. And that turned out to be a complete mistake because even though I'd written a lot about companies that went to go and show some slides to investors and two weeks later received a check for $10 million, actually I was completely unable to raise any money at all. And the result was that without ever intending it that way, I, I was forced to put my life savings into the business. How scary was that? Very. You must have had a belief that mm. what you were doing was going to work. Well, I did at the beginning. By the point where I was close to despair and was nearly convinced that it wasn't going to work, it was by then too late, and I had to keep showing up in the hope of trying to recover it. How did you feel when it succeeded, when it was bought, and when you were able to financially realise all that work? What's that feeling like? Well, it's a slightly weird kind of otherworldly experience. And I think if you're a normal person and you don't have aspirations to owning a yacht or a private plane or something like that, then you know, being told that you're worth an enormous amount of money doesn't really make much difference in your life. It's odd slightly that quite a lot of very of very successful finance people and business people tend to get obsessed with how much money they've got relative to other people they know. And therefore they're not happy if they've only got a billion or 10 billion or 20 billion. They want to be Jeff Bezos or they want to be... Logan Roy from Succession. Logan Roy, exactly. (laughs) By the way, of course, the interesting thing about Succession is that it's a marvelous illustration that money doesn't bring happiness. Absolutely, I want to come and ask you that. But once you've achieved the success of QXL, doesn't everything after that point feel a bit anticlimactic? Because, I mean, this was your baby. You built it, you sold it, you took the risks, you sweated at night over it. Can anything quite achieve that level of excitement or thrill or achievement once you did what you did? Well, I think it's definitely true that I was working crazy hours and I was very happy to switch to a life where I had a a more normal working schedule. But I think probably my biggest motivation was curiosity. I wanted to know what it would be like 
to build a business. I wanted to, to, to learn about what were the things you needed to do. And I think if curiosity is what you're driven by, then there's always lots, lots more things to learn about the world. What was it like then when you went on to work for a private equity firm, in effect, working for someone else, as opposed to nurturing your own, your own baby? Well, it happened because the headhunter that we'd hired to, to recruit my own successor at the company called me after the company went public and said, I know you're lazing around, I've got a job for you. Um, and I said, no thanks, I don't need any more jobs. And they said, yeah, but you'd be interested in this one. Um, and I was because it was a fund that had raised a chunk of money to invest in European internet companies. And I had done a number of, of transactions with venture capital firms that had invested in my own company. But I really knew nothing about what was going on on their side, how, how the world looked from their side. And I thought it would be interesting to find out. Venture capital is very different from other forms of investing because what you expect is that nine out of 10 of the investments that you make will fail completely. Mm. And you're hoping that the 10th one will do so spectacularly well that it will make up the losses of the other nine and a bit more. And so what that means is that the life of a venture capitalist is one of constant repeated failure with intermittent successes. That's psychologically quite hard to get your head around. Yeah, but at the same time, it's knowing that amongst the clutch of, I don't know, potential businesses or individuals that you're thinking of investing in, there's going to be one. So I assume it's trying to, to find the, the special source that sits on, on one business in the same way that you're doing with Walking Ventures, that, that individual that is, has got something which is different from all others. That's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons why it's inspirational being a venture investor, because you meet all the time people who have a strong conviction that they're going to change the world and they're going to succeed. What you know from your own observation is that most of them sadly will turn out to be wrong. But nevertheless, it's incredibly positive meeting people filled with such optimism. Those individuals that you meet when you're taking a walk, such as we've been doing, is there something, is it persistence? Is it, is it emotional intelligence? Is it the ability to ride risk that you see as important? There's as many different kinds of, of entrepreneurs as there are different kinds of businesses. And the personality traits that would make you very successful in running a consumer-facing business are very different from those which you'd need to sell a product to giant companies where you have to walk the corridors and nurture relationships with lots of people in the same organization over a period of time. So I think it's important to have not too many preconceived notions about what the perfect startup founder looks like. There are probably two things that are quite important. One is conscientiousness. You have to be willing to keep showing up even when things don't look like they're going incredibly well. And the other is openness, which means here the willingness to reconsider what you thought was the right answer and change it in the light of new data. And the paradox is that if you're starting a company, you have to be crazy enough to believe that it will succeed when most people around you will tell you that it won't and you'd better stay with your day job. But you have to be not quite crazy enough that you keep flogging the dead horse when it's clear that you've made a mistake. You spoke earlier about money and people's pursuit of money as the goal, and it doesn't necessarily bring happiness. I'm interested in, in your own sense of professional 
contentment if you you feel you have achieved that I mean you've been through a number of incarnations you know with having your own business being a journalist as we've said and now in a way identifying and nurturing talent have you reached a point professionally where you think yeah I'm successful I'm happy I'm enjoying myself um I definitely feel I'm happy and enjoying myself success is a slightly weird word because it's often used as a euphemism for money but the way I see it is that I've done lots of things in my life, and many of them I've messed up, and many of them haven't worked. But they've been enjoyable, and I've learned from them. And it's great to learn from something and then move on and do something else. It's success for you is enjoyment. I think success is learning and working at something and building something. If you've tried and done your best, that's what counts. Tim, thank you very much. Well, Richard, thank you for having me. It's been great. So I'm back home now, and I have to say that was one of the most educational and fascinating walks I've taken in a long time. So Tim went from being a journalist, which is in a way, I suppose, a professional observer, as he said, to a participant. He threw himself in to the world of business and obviously he succeeded. What I find really interesting is that he has retained those skills of observation, I think, as key to his success in business, in trying to assess a person, what they're planning to do with their business, and trying to assist them in reaching success. It also strikes me that Tim is a consummate problem solver. He sees problems or issues and he wants to resolve them in his own business, as he did initially with QXL and later on with other businesses. And seemingly it's this, rather than, as he said, any sense of financial accomplishment, which has brought him the satisfaction, which for him, therefore, defines success. If you've enjoyed this program, then please do listen to others in the series, which contain, I think, a range of fascinating interviews and individuals. Also, do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share and rate this podcast series. I'm Richard Myron. The producer is Anouk Mie, and this has been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. All the best.